So please um, open up your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 16. We're traveling along with the children of Israel and their wilderness wanderings out of Egypt into the promised land. And we're going to continue with them again today. Let's just stop and ask God's blessing. Father, we ask for your help. We ask for your grace today as we open up your word. Pray that it would be life-giving. Pray that it would be instructional. Lord, that you would teach and feed your children, your sheep today, with the pure word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning as we come to Exodus 16, we are going to rejoin the Israelites as they're journeying through the wilderness. And last week we saw how they responded when they came to a situation where there was no water. Do you remember what happened? They grumbled. They grumbled. They came to the waters of Marah. They were so excited because they had been three days without water and they finally found water. And when they tried to drink it, it was foul. It was brackish. It was acidic. They spat it out in disgust. They couldn't drink it. And so they grumbled against Moses. Well, today we're going to find out what happens when they come into a situation where there's no food. Now that they've learned their lesson from having no water and God testing them there, will they do any better with this test when there's no food? Well, let's take a look at the first three verses of Exodus 16. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So you can see they're not doing any better this test either. <laughs> they got an F on the first test. They get an F on the second test as well. Now, I'm not belittling their plight. I mean, if I were in their situation, I'm sure that I would be terrified as well. I mean, did you see how long it's been since they've left Egypt? This is the 15th day of the second month. That's six weeks. They've been six weeks, and they they took some food, of course, with them when they left Egypt. But, of course, that's been eaten up a long time ago. So what are they going to eat? I mean, maybe if they saw some wild game along the way, maybe they could catch that. Or if there was some wild berries or... But they've got two to three million people. Those little animals or bears are not going to go very far. These people were hungry. I imagine by now they're starting to kill off their livestock and, and just eat their livestock because they had nothing else to eat. They were desperate. Just like when they had no water for three days, they have no food for six weeks. They're really desperate. And they're in panic mode. They, there's no way to get any more food as long as they can see. They thought they were all going to starve. And they're blaming Moses because he's the one that led them out into that wilderness. Why did you just leave us back in Egypt? At least back there we had food. Out here we've got no food at all. Now, look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk 
in my instruction. So God himself says he's going to provide for their food. The manna was the only thing that stood between the people of Israel and death. They had to hang all their hopes of survival on that because they had no other hope. Now, interestingly, when you go to John chapter 6, Jesus speaks about the manna in the wilderness, and he tells us something very interesting. I want you to go over there for just a minute. It's John chapter 6, verses 31 to 35. Now, the people of Israel, this is what they say to Jesus in verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Jesus is talking about himself. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus here is claiming to be the fulfillment of the manna that God gave the children of Israel for 40 years. In other words, the manna, that food that God gave them to eat, was a picture or a shadow or a type of something else. And the fulfillment is Jesus Christ. So as we go back to Exodus 16 and we read about the account of God giving them food, Jesus wants us to see something greater in that. He wants us to see himself as the true reality behind the shadow of this physical food that they called manna. So this morning, as we're in Exodus 16, we're going to look at manna as a picture of Jesus Christ under three different headings. First, the gift of the manna, then the gathering of the manna, and then the glory of the manna. First of all, the gift. And there are several things that we want to note under this heading, the gift of the manna. First of all, the manna was undeserved. Wouldn't you say so, according to verse 2? Because the whole congregation of Israel is grumbling against Moses. It wasn't just a few people. A person there, a person there, a person there. It says the whole congregation is grumbling. And to grumble against Moses and Aaron was really to grumble against God because God is the one who appointed Moses and Aaron as the leaders of the people. So they're grumbling against God, all of them. It would be much more just of God to rain down fire and brimstone upon them than to rain down bread from heaven. But God never really looks for the reason to bless people in them. He always finds a reason in himself. God is generous and gracious and kind and good. And so God found a reason within himself, not in them, to rain down bread from heaven. They were filled with unbelief and ingratitude, but in spite of that, God is loving, kind to them. It reminds me of what we have in the New Testament in Titus chapter 3, where it says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Salvation, according to Scripture, is not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. It wasn't God giving the man, it wasn't on the basis of their deeds of righteousness because they didn't have any. All they had is unbelief, ingratitude, murmuring, and grumbling. But in spite of that, God saw fit within his great heart of grace to pour out abundance for their need. And in spite of our sin and depravity, God has found something within his great heart of love to grant salvation to this wicked and degenerate world. Secondly, I want you to notice that the manna was a gift. That goes right along with the first one, but it was a gift. We read that in verse 8. Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Notice in verse 8, the Lord gives you meat and the Lord gives you bread. And then also verse 15. When the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. You see, God wasn't selling the manna. He didn't say, If you give me $10, I'll give you a day's supply of manna. <laughs> God didn't even expect them to pay him back. After you get to the promised land and you start raising crops and vegetables, then you can pay me back. No. This was, what? A gift. And a gift was not meant to be sold. It's not meant to be paid back. It's free. And that's how salvation works, isn't it? It's free from the very gracious hands of God. Just as the manna was a gift, Jesus Christ is God's gift to this world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is God's gift to this world. See, if God waited until we deserved Christ, he would be waiting until hell froze over because we're never going to be at that place. And so God didn't wait for that. What a gracious, kind God we serve. It overflowed from his heart of goodness. Thirdly, notice that the manna was given in abundance. It was given in abundance. Look at verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer apiece, according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And you say, okay, what's an omer? <laughs> I did some research and found out an omer is approximately five pints. So you know what a pint is, 16 ounces, five of those a day. And that's how much everybody got to eat, five pints of manna per day. But I want you to think about how much that is. Uh, that's 10 million pints every day if there's only 2 million Israelites. 10 million pints every day. That's 5,000 tons of food every day. I can't even conceive of a ton of food. That's 2,000 pounds. It's 5,000 of those tons every day. That's 10 trains, each having 25 cars on it, each car with 20 tons of manna rolling into town every single day. Can you believe this? That's almost 2 million tons of food every year that God is giving to his people. Abundance, right? 
So if, if someone didn't have food, it wasn't because God didn't give enough of it. They, no one needed to be left out who didn't exclude themselves. It was everywhere. It was all over the ground as far as your eye could see. This manna was for everyone. God gave it in abundance. And the principle here is that Jesus Christ is given to us in abundance. There's enough of Christ to go around to meet every need in this world. Spurgeon used to say, I have a great need for Christ, but I have a great Christ for my need. And isn't that the truth? He's greater than your need. He's greater than your sin. He can meet every need that you have, emotional, physical, spiritual. The Lord Jesus is all that we need. So God is not stingy when it comes to lavishing his gifts. Salvation comes to us full and free. And then the manna was available to all. If some perished, as I said before, it was either because they rejected God's gift of the manna or they neglected God's gift of the manna. Not because there was no manna for, to be had. Salvation was available. It was available to all the Israelites. All they had to go out is gather it up and eat it. It was there for the taking. It was a free gift from God. Which reminds me of what we find in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 10, verses 11 to 13. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all abounding, there's our abundance, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now maybe there's some conflict going on in your mind because you've also heard me teach you the doctrine of uh, unconditional election, which means that God has chosen whom He will save. But that doctrine does not negate this doctrine. This doctrine is that salvation is available to and sincerely offered to everyone in the world. Everyone who hears the gospel preached, that salvation is offered to them. And God isn't, you know, playing around. It's not like God is saying one thing and really meaning another. He's sincere. If they will come, whoever they are, elect or not, they will be saved. Christ is suitable to every person. In other words, he meets the real need of every person in the world. He's available to every person. Sinners do not perish because there is no salvation possible or no salvation offered or no salvation available. Sinners perish because they either reject Christ or neglect Christ. Over Hebrews chapter 2 verse 4, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Just yesterday morning we were going around in Fernando's apartment building sharing the gospel with people and there were people there and th this happens every time we go around, who just say, oh, I'm good. As soon as we start talking about Christ, I'm good, which means I'm not interested. I don't really want what you have. I think I'm okay without it. What's happening is that they're neglecting the great salvation that God has provided. And neglecting salvation will send you to hell just as fast as rejecting salvation. So the manna is available. And never get it into your mind that we can't offer Christ to every person. God has commanded us to preach the gospel to every creature. No, we're commanded to do that. And God is sincerely offering Christ to all.
If you can't put that together with election, don't worry about it. Just believe them both. <laughs> the manna had to be eaten. That's another principle. God didn't give this manna for them to admire. He didn't give it to them so that they could talk about it. He gave the manna to them so that they would eat it. It could be laying all around the door of their tent flap, glistening in the morning sun, and they could open that flap and say, wow, look at that beautiful stuff all over the ground. Ah, oh, that's so pretty. It's so beautiful. But unless they got out of their tent and picked it up and put it in their mouth and chewed it and swallowed it, it would do them no good. And Christ will do us no good as long as we just admire him or talk about him or learn about him. We have to eat him. You have to take him in. You've got to be vitally joined to Jesus Christ. There's got to be a real connection between you and Christ. Otherwise, if you just attend a church, get baptized, do all of the outward rituals like somebody was sharing earlier today, um, but you're not circumcised of the heart, you know, the inward relationship to Christ, it'll do you no good at all. You've got to eat him. Though Jesus Christ is available to all, and he's offered to all, unless we appropriate him, we too will perish. We may perish having gone to church for 50 years of our life. Week after week after week, hearing the gospel every Sunday. That's like you opening the flap of your tent and looking at that man and think, wow, that really looks beautiful. But you never eat any of it. You've, to be saved, you've got to take Christ in. He's got to be more than just somebody else's Savior that did wonderful things. He's got to be your own Savior. So there we have the gift of the manna. Let's look at the gathering of the manna. The manna had to be gathered by every single person. Look at verse 18. When they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. That tells me that everybody had to go get their own manna. Somebody couldn't gather up all the manna for their family or for all the people in their tent. Every person had to gather it for themselves. And my friend, you have to gather Christ for yourself. It's not enough if your parents are Christians. It's not enough if you've grown up in a Christian home. Sometimes we might think that we can get into heaven on our parents' coattails, right? Well, they know you, Lord. Isn't that good enough? No, it's not good enough. You have to know him for yourself. You have to have a relationship with him for yourself. Someone said, God has no grandchildren. You're either his child or you're lost. You can't come to him through proxy, through somebody else. So any of the, the children are here with me today, you need to realize you need to come to know Jesus Christ really and personally and individually and truly for yourself and walk with him in relationship. Also, the manna had to be gathered every single day. Look at verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, <clears throat> and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. Or, look at verse 21. They gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. 
So it was a daily experience to feed on this manna. The only day that was different was the sixth day. God told them on the sixth day to collect twice as much. And then on the Sabbath day, when they weren't supposed to go out and gather, they would have enough food to eat for that day. But every other day, they would go out morning by morning, collect the manna, and eat it for that day. And you understand the principle here, don't you? We have to feed on Jesus Christ every single day. You can't live off of past experiences of fellowship with Christ. You can't lift, live off of last year's scripture that the Lord impacted you with. You need fresh experiences with the Lord, fresh fellowship with Christ. You need to feed on him every day, just as the children of Israel did. And of course, the way we do that, we feed on the living word, who's Jesus, through the written word, which is the scripture. So we need to be gathering up the scriptures for our soul every single day. What happened if they tried to gather a whole bunch of manna on one day so that they wouldn't have to go out the rest of the week and they could just live off of that manna? Look at verse 20. But they didn't listen to Moses, and some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. So if you tried to, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll just gather a whole bunch for the whole week, and then I won't have to go out and collect any more manna. It would breed worms. It would become foul, and it was impossible to eat it. God is, I think he's making a point here. <laughs> just as the manna had to be collected and gathered and eaten daily, Christ needs to be gathered and collected and eaten by God's people every single day. What would you think if I told you, hey guys, I've got a new eating plan. Here's my new plan. I'm going to only eat one day out of the week. I'm going to eat on Sundays. And I'm going to gorge myself on breakfast. And then when we have our big meal, I heard I'm going to have three or four plates. And then after you all go, go home, I'm going to have another three or four plates. And I'm just going to get so full because I'm not going to eat the rest of the week. You say, Brian, you're kind of nuts. <laughs> you know, that sounds like a stupid plan to me. But that's what a lot of Christians do. They come to church on Sunday wanting to get all of their food for the week, and they never crack a Bible the rest of the week. They never eat the manna the rest of the week. You see how silly it is, how crazy it is to try to live off of a Sunday experience? God wants you to learn how to feed your own soul. That's why I'm so excited that the church is going through this New Testament reading plan a chapter a day because I think it's going to help you develop solid, good habits of how you can feed your own soul. Especially as you hear about how others got this from the text and someone got that from the text. You say, oh, that's how you do it. That's how you get principles and teachings and that's how the Lord feeds your soul. So it had to be gathered every day. It also had to be gathered early in the day. Because verse 21 says, but when the sun grew hot, it would melt. That tells me that you couldn't wait until the sun came out and got hot. If you did that, it was all melted. If you slept in and didn't get out there early in the day and didn't make this the number one priority of your life, you went hungry that day. And if we don't make our fellowship with Christ our number one priority, the thing that we do first Believe me, I know this principle. <laughs> you will go hungry spiritually. Your spiritual life will start to wane. There have been times when I thought, okay, well, I, 
There's no commandment in the Bible for me to have to, you know, read my Bible and pray first thing in the morning. So I'll just do that later. I've got so much to do right now. I'll just put it off. I'll do it in the afternoon or I'll do it after dinner tonight. Do you know what happens invariably in those cases? Nothing. <laughs> it doesn't ever happen. I've just found that that's true for me. And I bet it's probably true for a lot of you. I think that's why we see this principle. The manna had to be gathered early. Do you gather the manna of the word for your life early every day? You get up at 7 o'clock, you get up at 6 o'clock, roll out of bed, try to get awake, crack your Bible open, start to read, start to pray about the things you're reading, start texting other people in the church what you found. They're texting you. You're being enriched. You're being encouraged. That's how God would have us to live by faith. There's a reason they call it spiritual disciplines because it takes discipline. If it was easy, we wouldn't call these things spiritual disciplines, would we? It's not easy. You have to, you have to prioritize your life to make Christ first, which means he comes before everything else. Well, let's talk about the glory of the manna for a while. The first thing I want you to see about this manna was it, it was mysterious. Verse 15 says that when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. <laughs> now, in the Hebrew language, if you wanted to say, what is it? Do you know how that came out? Manha. That's what it sounded like. Manha. So when they tried to figure out what should we call this stuff, they just called it manna because when they first saw it, all they could say was, what is that? What is that? <laughs> I mean, put yourself in their position. They woke up one morning, they look around, and there's this fine, flaky stuff all over the ground. They'd never seen this in their life. What in the world is it? And in the same way, there are mysteries about Jesus Christ that we don't understand and won't ever really understand. This side of glory, at least. One of them, uh, theologians call it the hypostatic union. Anybody know what that is? The hypostatic union is Jesus Christ, one person, indivisible, but ha having two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. God and man in one person. And you think, well, is he half God and half man? No. He's all God and all man. Wait a minute. You can't be all God and all man. That's the hypostatic union. That's, that's what we derive from scripture when we, Jesus was truly man and truly God in one person. Now, I don't think anybody really understands that. It's like the Trinity. Wait a minute. How can there be three persons in one God? There's got to be three gods. No, there's one God. Three persons. You know, in, in our minds, it doesn't make any sense, but that's what's revealed to us in the Word of God. There are things about Jesus that are mysteries. And we just accept those mysteries. We accept what the Word of God says about Him. Notice also the manna was white. Verse 31 says, The house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white. Well, big deal. So it was white. Does that have any significance? Well, if this is a picture of Jesus, then we ought to see maybe the color is significant. What is white a picture of in the New Testament? It's a godly color. 
A godly color? Yeah. Okay. All right. Purity. Purity. Cleansing. Cleansing. Absolutely. In the book of Revelation, which Revelation is a book full of symbols. It says in chapter 7, verse 9, And I looked and I saw a multitude which no man can number, standing with palm branches in their hand, clothed with white garments. And down in verse 14, it says that they have um, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, if you literally take a garment and wash it in blood, it's not going to come out white. These are symbols. <laughs> the symbol means that the blood of Jesus Christ purifies and cleanses away all defilement. And so I don't know for sure, but when I look at this and I see that it's white, I think, well, there, that fits Christ very well because Christ is the absolutely spotless one, the pure one. Perfect, without any moral blemish on him at all. The scripture says in Hebrews 7.26 that, well, let me just look it up. I'll read it to you. Hebrews 7.26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. That's our Lord. That's our pure Lord, our righteous Lord, our holy Lord. Notice also that the manna was sweet. We just read a little bit of that, but let's keep reading. Back in Exodus 31, 1631, it was like coriander seed, it was white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. It almost sounds like a dessert, doesn't it? And I, <laughs> I'd like to taste some manna. Wafers with honey. You ever had Nabisco? Uh, what are those called? Vanilla. Vanilla wafers. That's what I imagine. Maybe it was kind of like that. I don't know. God's bread from... But it tasted good. It wasn't, you know, like cod liver oil where you just had to force it down. It was something sweet to the taste. And I think that's significant. Because Christ is not just cod liver oil that you've got to force down. He's sweet to the believer's taste buds. Have you experienced that in your life? That Christ is sweet? That you've actually experienced Him. You've actually tasted in a spiritual way the sweetness of Christ. I want to share a few scriptures with you that the psalmist of Psalm 119 knew this truth about Christ. In Psalm 119, verse 103, he says, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. <clears throat> now, they didn't have refined sugar in those days, so when they wanted a sweetener, they got honey. That was the way to sweeten things up and make them palatable and enjoyable and pleasant and desirable. Well, the psalmist says God's word to his soul was sweet, like honey. Look at Jeremiah 15, 16. <clears throat> Jeremiah 15, 16. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I've been called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. 
He says, I found your words. When I found them, they were a joy and they were the delight of my heart. Or how about Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. You see, the word of God should not be some kind of a, oh, how, how would I even describe it or compare it? Some terrible chore that you have to put yourself through. You hate it. It's disgusting to you. Uh, you can't wait till it's done, but you know you have to do it because you're a Christian. <laughs> That's like the opposite of what God, the, the word of God should be sweet, delightful, pleasant, enjoyable, health giving, all of those things. In fact, over in Psalm 34, verse 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. But you have to taste. You see, we can't really describe what we're talking about when we say that the Lord was sweet to my soul. You can't really help someone to understand that unless they taste it for themselves. It's like telling someone, well, this is how ice cream tastes. So this person's never ever tasted ice cream. It tastes sweet, and it's cold, and it's wet. That's it. That's ice cream. Sweet, cold, and wet. Well, that really doesn't help them to understand what ice cream tastes like until they put some in their mouth and they, they actually taste it. People, all of us have to actually experience the sweetness of Christ or we'll never really understand what, what everyone else is talking about. It's something you have to experience. Not only was it sweet, it was all sufficient. In Exodus 16, verse 35 it says, the sons of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now, sometimes I almost feel sorry for the sons of Israel that they had to eat the same food every single day. It's like my dog Murphy. You know, he never gets anything but dog food. Nothing. I thought, might I kill myself if I was a dog? Oh, yeah, dinner, more dog food. <laughs> <laughs> but he seems to be so happy to get that dog food every night. Wagging his tail, he can't wait to get more dog food. <laughs> so there was something really wonderful about this manna that they could enjoy it for 40 years without ever getting tired of it. But that's what I want you to see. It was all sufficient. Oftentimes, that was the only thing they had to eat. So it had to have all the vitamins in it, all the minerals, everything that was life-sustaining and life-giving was in that manna. All sufficient. And Christ has everything that we need in himself. He's all sufficient for the believer. He has forgiveness for us. He has fellowship with us. He has power and victory over sin. He has love to shed abroad in our hearts. Whatever your need is, you can go to Christ and he will be your uh, provider of that need because he's your manna. Debbie likes to tell the story of when she realized that if she lost her husband and her children, tragically, through some kind of an accident, of course that would be devastating, but if she still had Jesus, she would still have everything. But if she lost Jesus and had her family, she'd have nothing. See, Christ, all by himself, apart from anything else, is everything to the Christian. Not only that, the manna gave strength for the journey. Without this food, the children of Israel would go faint and weak 
and fall by the side. They would have not have the strength to keep marching through that wilderness day after day. They wouldn't have the strength to fight the battles with the Amalekites and the Philistines that they had to endure. So it was strength for the march. It was strength for the fight. And we have a fight. We have sin to fight, temptations to fight, the devil to fight. We have a march. We are marching to heaven day after day after day. And we're not going to have the strength we need to engage in the march or to engage in the fight without feeding on Christ every day. He is our life. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's the strength for the Christian life right there. Christ living in you. And he will not live in you powerfully unless you fellowship with him often and daily. And then finally, I want to show you this one. The manna showed the glory of God. That comes out for us in Exodus 16, 7. Well, I'll start in verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, at evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. Now what happened in the morning so that they could see the glory of the Lord? Well, look at verse 13. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground, which was the manna. So Moses and Aaron said, in the morning, you're going to see the glory of the Lord. And in the morning, the manna was all over the camp. The manna was a visible manifestation of the glory of the Lord. Do you want to see, do you want a visible manifestation of the glory of Jehovah? Look at Jesus Christ. He is the glory of God. Christ is. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. You want to see God visibly? Look at Jesus. In fact, in John 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No man has seen God at any time. But he who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So Jesus Christ is God's glory. He's the outshining of God's nature, God's attributes in a person that we can see and touch and feel and hear. Just like the manna, God showed himself most he shows himself in many ways, through creation and through people, but mostly God shows himself through his Son. That's the highest apex of the glory of God is in Jesus Christ. And the highest element of seeing the glory of God in Jesus is when Jesus is dying on that cross. Because all of God's attributes come out and are displayed brilliantly through the cross. His grace and his love and his kindness and his wrath and his justice, all of it comes out at the cross. So there we have the glory of the manna. Now, let's wrap this up with a challenge for all of you. I don't know how many of you are disciplined in your spiritual life to seek God every day. I don't know how many. Maybe it's half of you, a third, two-thirds. Maybe it's all of you. I don't know. 
But if that's not your daily habit, I want to challenge you to begin the daily discipline of spending time with Christ first. Make it priority. If that means that you have to get up earlier, then that's what you have to do. You have to get go to bed earlier so you can get up earlier so that you can spend time with Jesus. He's got to be your first priority. If you put it off and say, well, I'll do that later, it won't happen. And so here are some real practical suggestions on how you can do that. I would encourage you just to begin reading through the New Testament with the rest of the church. Read a chapter a day with us. That's your starting point. And after you read, pray about that thing that the Lord has especially spoken to you from that chapter. So as you're reading, try to have your spiritual antenna up and, and you're praying, Lord, what do you want me to see from this chapter from my life today? And when you see it, get a journal, get some kind of a notebook and jot down that thought. So jot the text down, jot the thought down. And then take some time, if, if, you have, if, if you have a cell phone and it's capable of texting, text that thought to the rest of your brothers and sisters in the church because they're going to text it back to you. And we're going to be edified by each other. So there's reading of Scripture, there's prayer. You need to pray about what God has zeroed in on your life for that day. So let's say you're reading Philippians. Uh, chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. And so your thought for the day is, gee, I really don't have that much joy in my life. I really want to have more joy. Pray about it. Lord, would you help me to be more filled with your joy today and every day? You know, you turn it into prayer. Whatever God speaks to you in his word, go back to the Lord in prayer. I would also encourage you, if you want more, to choose a passage of scripture that has had some meaning in your life, that the Lord has used in your life, and memorize it. It might be one verse. You start with one verse, but maybe you'll want to write, uh, memorize the paragraph that that verse was contained in. And so you just work on one verse a day. I used to get these three-by-five cards and write out the verses and carry them with me in my pocket, and when I was at a light waiting for it to turn green, I'd whip it out and look at it, look up and see if the light turned green, look down again. <laughs> They have apps for your phone now where you can memorize scripture and keep them all on your phone. And I mean, if, if you want to do it, there's all kinds of tools available. But memorizing scripture will help you tremendously. And then the fourth thing I would encourage you to do is to worship the Lord throughout the day. Sing to him. You know, as you're driving in the car, choose a song, a praise song, and just sing. Uh, as you notice things that he's done for you throughout the day, thank him right then and there. Thank you, Lord, for providing that. I, that happens to me all the time when I lose my keys or something and I find them. Thank you, Lord, so much for helping me find my keys. <laughs> Whatever it is. So you're, you're trying to stay in touch all through the day, keeping short accounts, worshiping, hearing from the Lord, going back to the Lord in prayer. This is gathering up the manna and feeding on it. And if you'll do that, Christ will satisfy you in every way. Let's pray. I pray, Father, that we would all take up the challenge this morning of putting you first and finding sweetness in our relationship to you. Lord, please work in us a desire and a holy motivation to walk with you every day of our lives, Lord. Please forgive us for those times when we don't do this, Lord. 
We ask for forgiveness and we ask for greater desire after our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>